Dear Lord Jesus, we are just humbled again to be here, and we just pray that you would be glorified in our lives, in this country, in this world. We pray that you would bring us to repentance and whatever you have in store for us, that you would just bring healing to this nation, bring healing to our lives. <coughs> and my allergies. Um, Lord, we also just pray for the church tonight that you would give us eyes of wisdom to see uh, what needs to change and that we would um, be able to recognize sin, that we would be able to just, I guess, turn our lives to you, that we wouldn't always ask what's in it for us, but that it would be all about you, that you would be our focus. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, Matthew 13 is what we're going to look at here a little bit. Just want to, before we get too deep into it, just um, in Bible study this morning, Terry was talking again, just brought up some interesting things that I, I found kind of challenging analogy. Is Christianity more like democracy? Or is it socialism, a dictatorship? What do we, what is Christianity? Where, let me ask, put it this way. What do you see the attitude of Christianity today being? Today? Bunch of wimps. In general. As far as. Tell us how you really feel, though. As far as. Do you know what I mean by a democracy versus a dictatorship? A democracy, we all get a say. We get to vote who our king is. Whereas, in biblical times, God was king for the most part. We saw that the Israelites turned their back on him and wanted a king. And that king was still kind of a... Well, they, they obeyed their king. They followed what their king said. But it was kind of like the wrong one. They, they rejected God and put a man in their place. But speaking of it even from the way it was supposed to be, if God is our king, Christianity really shouldn't be a democracy, should it? It should be kind of like a dictatorship. If the dictator is a good person, loving powerful, I mean, that would be a good thing. You know, and, and it's kind of the same thing with socialism. People use the argument of the Bible in Acts saying that the Bible supports socialism because in Acts they sold all their things and distributed it out evenly among everybody and that's socialism. Well, what they're forgetting is that that was voluntary, not coming from a dictatorship, and that's probably why it didn't last, because we're just filled with sin. And so socialism is not a biblical model in the flesh. Maybe in in heaven it would be nice. But if you if everybody was perfect, it could work. But even in heaven, it's not socialism. I mean, if you read in Revelation, we see in heaven that there are those that are rewarded much and those that are rewarded little. In hell, there are those that are punished much and those that are punished little. You know, a few blows or many blows kind of thing. 
Even in heaven, there are degrees of glory. It's not evenly distributed out. So, uh, I don't think it's meant to be a socialism. I think it's more of a dictatorship with a good dictator. But the democracy aspect for me was interesting as I was thinking about that because we always vote for somebody based usually, I mean we should do it on moral values and things like that, but usually people vote for a king based on what can that king do for them. Well, you're saying vote for a king. Or a president in our, in our case. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? That we're, we kind of look at Christianity in that sense as what can God, what can our King do for me? And that we should have some input in our prayers and in everything that we do. We're always, and we kind of touched on it with music. It's always me centered music versus just glorifying God. And in other countries, you know, in India, I saw it, you, you see it in Egypt. If there's a king, most of the people are going to serve that king without question, with full dedication. They die for the king, you know, whatever. Now, I know that's not all across the board. I mean, they get assassinated and stuff too. But for the most people, poor people, most part, poor people don't have the opportunity or time to even worry about what am I getting out of this. It's this is the king, this is what he tells me to do, and I will blindly obey that because he's king. That's not how a democracy works. And in America, we have taken this democratic approach to Christianity where we... We pray for, you know, whatever, and we think that if we're good, we deserve this and we deserve that, rather than just serving our king, obeying him without question, and just doing our job. Because he's king. He tells us to do it. But we always are asking, well, why God? Do I really have to? I mean, you don't do that. I think I've said before the very words, yes, Lord, that we say uh, a Lord is somebody who's your master. So we should be saying, yes, Lord, but yet there are many, no, Lord. Talk about a contradiction in terms. You say, no, Lord, that's like, okay, well, then you're out of here. You, you never said no to your master, but that's what we, we do today. I'm having a hard time seeing where the line you're drawing is between our actual country's government and, and, and just more how the Christian body runs itself. Not necessarily trying to make a line between our Christian or our government and the Christian body as much as to examine Christianity today and use our current government system as an analogy to what our Christianity has become that it's become a democratic religion. Well, with that point as well, you, when you say that, you're kind of assuming that the way our country is run is now the same as, as it was intended, which is really completely untrue. Like, our founding fathers were 
very godly men who did what they think God, thought God was calling them to do. I think they set up the most perfect government the world has ever seen. Now, fast forward 200 some odd years, we are not running the same show that they started. Right. Well, for one thing, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Yeah, which is a little different. Yeah, a lot different. And second thing would be, yeah, I mean, our attitude is is so much different than what our forefathers were. And so I think what we have today is not an accurate model of what our forefathers set up. And likewise, that's what's happened with the church, is what this democratic mindset of what's in it for me and I get a say in my life and all of these kinds of things. It's been transposed. That's a good way to put it. Well, and even along that line, I, I think it's not so much whatever model you're using. I think that the Christian church is in a sense just become less Christian all across the board. There's less of Christ in what we're doing. I don't think it really matters what we're doing if Christ isn't in it. How good it looks on paper. But why is there less Christ in it? Christ in in what we're doing? Is it because of that mindset? Because we've become a, we've become a privileged society. No. You know, we, we get this and we get that, and it's all about, well, I want this and I want that. It's not about, you know, even, you know, 60, 70 <coughs> years ago when everybody really worked together as, as, you know, as like one. Like in the beginning, when they started the church, they worked as one body, much as like our nation started off as one nation, you know, working together and helping. Now it's become more of an individualized, well, I, I want to worship this way, and I want to pray this way. It's an yeah. I want, not a what can I do to serve you. Yeah. And along those same lines, I mean, just look at how corrupt... Standards throughout the church have become compared to that long ago. I mean, just everything that's happening in the church altogether just uh, women as pastors, gay people as pastors, gay people in the congregation, and just all sorts of exceptions that are being made in the church now that just wouldn't have existed. And not to please the Lord, but to please Man. man. And I can't help but think of the Exodus 32 golden calf thing. That was their democracy approach to their relationship with God. They, you know, Moses goes up the mountain and Aaron builds this golden calf and says, "All right, you know, God said this is how I want you to worship me. This is who I am. This is what you're to do." And then Moses comes down the mountain, and while Aaron has gone, or Aaron has built this golden calf and said, "This is your God. This is Yahweh right here. He's the one that led you out. Now go ahead and worship how you want to, the way you grew up in your culture. Forget about what God wants. You go ahead and worship God the way you want. You're worshiping the same God, Yahweh. That's what Aaron called him, but however you want to do it." Yeah, and I thought, you know, that's an interesting point. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is I think that this goes in well with this mustard seed parable because I'm going to kind of challenge you into what this means. So last week I gave you a homework assignment to read over the parable of the mustard seed. Anybody do that? No. 
I didn't think you would. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we are going to read it here now. Go to Matthew chapter 13. It's uh, verse 31, very short parable, but verses 31 through 35. It says, Jesus, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. Well, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Well, then he goes on and he explains the parable of the weeds and that he had done earlier the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the net, and so on. But this parable of the mustard seed isn't, an, isn't necessarily explained. However, all of these parables here are kind of dealing with the same topic. So we have to infer that there's a general theme that's being displayed here. So... In just kind of looking at that, what would you say is your general interpretation of what's going on here? I mean, this is so short. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. A man took, planted it in his field. Smallest of seeds, it grows. Largest of garden plants, and the birds come and perch in their branches. And then he's done. So what was Jesus trying to tell us here? He goes on to talk about yeast and this, you know, mixed into dough. Yeah. Is he talking about heaven now or heaven in the future? And that's a good question. When is the kingdom of God? Yeah. Yeah. Kudos. Well, first of all, let's narrow some things down here. What a parable is, okay? A parable. You you have to realize that it technically, according to the definition, it denotes playing. Placing beside. You're telling a story next to a truth, and so it's an analogy in a sense, but two dangers that you have to look out for are, one, that you don't make something out of every single detail within a parable. You can't make a doctrine out of that. So it's difficult to understand that sometimes. And the other danger is, is that you don't look at those details, because sometimes that's where the meaning is at, is in those details. So, really all that you can do is, you know, first of all, as we've done, pray that the Holy Spirit's going to give us understanding into what's going on here, and how we do that as well is by using Scripture to interpret the Scripture. Okay? And that's the key. You let other verses that will talk about the same thing interpret it without changing any context here. But 
in um, verses 10 through 17, he explains the purpose of all these parables. And he said that the purpose is what? In verses 10 through 17 there. Okay. To know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the secrets that are in there. To but to know to who? Who's going to know them? Okay, yeah. Ultimately, those who it's been given to, those who God has opened the eyes of faith up to, are going to understand this. But if you don't have that, you will not understand. So in essence, what he was doing is he spoke in parables so that some people wouldn't understand it. Okay? So they'd be going, duh, mustard seed, duh, what? King, king, this guy's nuts. And it pretty much did that. So the purpose is, is fulfilled there, but um, we have to be careful and like I said, look at this through the eyes of faith. Second Peter one nineteen says this, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Not what we want to see, which kind of goes along this democracy line I said before. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now obviously that refers to all of Scripture because it's inspired by God. Okay? Therefore, what God is doing here is He is giving some symbols, and so since we don't have the ability to come up with our own interpretation of what this means, we have to look at the symbols of Scripture to see. So what are some of the key things that are in this parable? What was it? A mustard seed, okay. Man, man planting a seed, okay. What was that? Yeast, but kind of that's a it's almost a parable within a parable there I think to elaborate on it. So we'll leave the yeast out, but you're right. Birds. Birds. Okay. Branches. What was that? The branches. The branches or the tree, yeah. That seems to be it. So those would be I mean there's not much there. So those are the things that we'll have to look at to see if we can find other meaning within that. Now, typically, the definition of this parable, I mean, if you look at any commentary, they're going to tell you, well, the kingdom of God is going to start out small, it ends up big. Yeast, though it's small, works through the whole dough. Therefore, God is going to, you know, give the, the spirit. It starts out with 12 disciples, and look where it's gone today in our society. Build the world makes sense is it getting smaller now that's a good question too yeah because he doesn't say kingdom of heaven and we haven't gotten to the kingdom of heaven part what does that mean yet we'll, we'll get to that in a second but 
yeah, it seems like for a while the church exploded and then now, you know, the Bible says in end times the church is going to become apostate. They're going to fall away. There are going to be very few people that are going to believe in the end times, just like it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be before the Son of Man comes. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, you know, right up till the day, you know, Noah brought fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah and that he brought rain down to flood the earth. So Luke 17 says that before the end times, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a huge tree with all kinds of, you know, great things perching in there but that it would actually be cut down almost. So that doesn't seem to fit the general theme of the rest of the scriptures. Good point. Well, let's get an overview here of Matthew 13. If you just kind of look at it again so that we get the whole context. Um, depending on your version, there's really seven or maybe eight parables here because some will combine um, you know, the parable of the yeast here. We've got the leaven and all of that. But there is the parable of the sower. You guys remember that one? We're sowing seed. Some falls on good soil. Some falls on bad soil. Uh, only the good one really grows. Um, the ones that grow among rocky ones get choked out. That type of thing. There's the parable of the wheat and tares where we see there's good grain and there's weeds. And he says, don't pull the weeds yet because some in, in so doing you might pull out some of the good wheat. And so just wait till the end of the time and the harvesters, the angels will come and they will do the harvesting. And they'll take the weeds and they'll throw it into the, into hell basically. But you may not know because you can't tell the difference either when it's young. Then there's the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven that we just wrote or read. Then there's the parable of the hidden treasure um, and the pearl of great price. The hidden treasure, um, you know, you go, you bury, or they find this treasure, you'll go sell everything that you have to gain this treasure. Uh, same kind of thing with the pearl of great price. Um, the net, kind of the same thing with the, the wheat and the tares. You get all these good fish and bad fish in the net. Um, then we have a parable of the, the householder, is what they call this one here. But we see kind of a theme that is put in place whether it be Satan's plan. If you look at the first four, the parable of the sower, we had the birds came and ate up some of the seed. And that interpretation on the parable of the sower, what are those birds usually that are eating the seed? I mean, it, Jesus even tells us what it means. The sower's out sowing seed, birds come and eat it up on the path so that it can't take root. Then he goes and he explains it. What are those birds? See if you can find that. The wicked one. Satan. Demons. Yeah. Bad things. Yeah. 
And so, there we see birds are not good. Revelation, we see birds are not good. Genesis with Abraham, the birds were not good. It seemed to be satanic, demonic. That was a raven that brought Elijah bread. That was good, but that seemed to be that wasn't necessary. That wasn't a parable either. Nor was Abraham, but Abraham's was kind of a vision, dream type of thing that was a little different. But with Elijah, that was just God take. You know, he controls the birds, and it didn't seem to be a a parable type message. So it seems that birds often in times of Scripture, at least like this, are referring to demons, bad things. And so here we, we're looking at it as this mustard seed growing and the birds are coming and landing in the trees. I don't know, but they're resting in the branches. And so the question is, is this a picture of end time, king, the kingdom of God end times, that Satan is going to be filling the church? That there are going to be many that are going to go before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles. And he says, yeah. Yeah, I know not who you are. Get away from me. A complete different view of the parable than what's normally given. Because the same thing in the parable of the wheat and tares, who sows the weeds? They even come in the parable, it says they come and say, well, who did this? And he said, well, an enemy did this. So what he's saying is that in the church, there's good and bad. I don't think that the wheat and the tares meant the church and then all the pagan world out there. But he's saying within the church, and this is why you can't tell the difference between the two, you've got those that belong to me and those that don't, that are casting out demons and, and performing miracles in his name. But he knows not. It's the same context. Or is it really a casting out or just him, Satan, saying, go over there? Yeah, all, the all the show, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, a house divided itself cannot stand. So, it's kind of interesting, if you look at the context here, at least in these first four parables, it seems to have a theme of Satan and his attack on the church or trying to weasel his way into the church. These wolves that are in sheep clothing that the Bible warns us about in Jude. He says, you've got these guys that have crept in among you. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. All of these warnings that God gives us throughout the New Testament that have crept in. Um... You know, as far as yeast goes, in the same thing, yeast is a, scripturally, what's that a symbol of? Anybody know? Usually, they did unleavened bread, right? Unleavened bread was a 
holy. Yeah. Yeah, it was throughout Scripture. Most of the time, it is views, viewed as false doctrine or the flesh. You know, Jesus warned, "Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees." For all the, the, those festivals, it was to, you offer bread without yeast. For Passover, they get the yeast out of the house, symbolizing the sins and and the the, the sinful fleshly nature, getting that out. They burn the bread, that you know, the yeast. And so typically, if yeast is viewed as a good thing, they use it here, this example, as it being a good thing. They say, yeah, but the kingdom of God is like yeast. It fills the world. So it's a good thing. It spreads out. Well, the question is, whoa, wait a minute. Contextually, if we're going to use this symbol throughout the Bible, yeast is a bad thing. And so you might be saying the kingdom of God is like a disease that a woman has and it spreads until it's throughout the whole thing. Yours doesn't say she hid it. Mine it says hid. Mm, mine just says the kingdom of heaven and this is just NIV that I'm reading. So what do you have? It says it takes, she took the leaven Well, that's interesting. No, this just says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. In so, years, is King James, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I can look here and just take a peek and see what it says in the um, well, that would work original. Because if leaven was a good thing, why would she take it and hide it? Yeah. Everything could be we know the woman you know revelation i'm i'm kind of taking this i'm i'm getting these to be more of an end time parable in time we see a woman riding a beast and and the woman is kind of a focus of evil there so there may be significance there but there may not i don't know Yes, yeah, it is. So, but isn't it? I mean, I don't. Have you guys, you know, heard these parables before as reference to the church just exploding and revival and a good thing? Yeah. But yeah, but contextually, that just you let scripture interpret scripture. This that really doesn't make sense. As far as that, to answer your question, as far as hiding it, the the Greek there is hide or to conceal in something to mingle one thing with another. So it sounds, one thing with another sounds shady. Yeah, and so to mix it in with the dough means... If you're going to take this bad, false doctrine, fleshly stuff, and you're going to mix it in with what was supposed to be pure, unleavened, it corrupts it all. Turning to white gray. Yeah. We do have our own.
Well, the, the next few parables there in this chapter, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet, um, the, the fishnet type thing, they have kind of a theme that seems to more focus on, on Christ and, and His power on behalf of the church. So it's kind of what God is willing to do to protect the church. Um, we see that the gospel is there, but notice that in the parable of the hidden treasure or the pearl of great price, that it's there, but it's something you have to seek after. And you're going to have to give everything you have to keep from being a part of this mustard seed, yeast-filled kind of thing. I think it's kind of ironic, or no, maybe not ironic, but you know how mustard seeds can be turned into mustard gas, which are super deadly. And typically used by oh. Nazis. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, and yeast isn't necessarily a good thing either. Yeah, no, it isn't. The parable of the dragnet, um, I'll just read that one here in verse 47, just to get that theme. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake, caught all kinds of fish. When it's full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down, collected the good fishing baskets, and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. So again, notice he is identifying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to the end of the age. And now this is really kind of a fulfillment, whereas the weeds and the terrors, he said, wait till the end. Now we're seeing the end has come and he's going to separate them. He says the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his store, storeroom new treasures as well as old. Typically, that's viewed as we're going to use both Old and New Testament if you have been instructed by the law correctly. I'm wondering if perhaps it isn't, therefore every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is going to be one who understands the present and the future. Kind of like what's going to be the earthly heaven, kingdom of heaven and what's going to be the new Kingdom of Heaven, perhaps. I don't know. Any thoughts there so far? One thing I was thinking earlier with the um, the reference to the tree being the Kingdom of Heaven and how we were all thinking, like, well, we're losing people now comparatively. When you think of the tree outside of the context of 
time, whereas any soul that's saved is saved eternally. Do you think that the tree shot up very quickly and is, if you think of it in reference to where we are now, it's it's getting into the age where it's maturing and it's not adding limbs and branches as fast as it would until it becomes completely matured and it's time for Okay. I'm going to hold off on that one because we're going to get to it. But you're right. There's something there's something strange there. Well, I'll just mention it first. Have you guys ever seen a mustard seed? Okay. They're just little I mean they're tiny. Have you ever seen a mustard plant? No. It is not even close to a tree. Yeah, there's something weird here. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But clearly, things uh, the way we have been growing up learning about this mustard seed, there's something not right. Sorry, we can't either. Tiny, yep. You're you're getting along the lines of what we're now. Yeah, yeah. We're, we'll come back to that, but that's kind of where we're headed with it. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. Um, before we do, let's just kind of finish up what we've opened up so far, uh, as far as kingdom of God goes, because or the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? There, there are different understandings of that because there's kind of the present and the future tense of, of that. So are we in the kingdom of heaven now? There's, there's arguments, denominational barriers based on this. Well, or Jehovah Witnesses. And, you know, I believe that it's kind of both. But the kingdom of heaven is now. But the kingdom of heaven is not yet. Because there's going to be two separate um, eras of it. Or one's going to be perfect and one is still somewhat flawed. Okay, well, so let's look at some verses here. Okay. Let's look up Colossians 1.13. Colossians one thirteen. All right, it says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son? So the kingdom of his dear son here. Um that word translated us, 
the Greek means to transfer, to remove from one place to another. Okay? So, what he's saying is, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and moved us from this darkness into the kingdom of God? Well, obviously it's Jesus as it goes on. You know, the image of the invisible God, the redemption through Jesus' blood. And so what takes us there? It's Jesus' blood. That still doesn't answer where it's at. However, um, I think that a lot of people have steered away from the idea that the kingdom of God is now because of the ideas that maybe that has been corrupted a little bit. You know, through Jehovah Witnesses or, or whatever the case might be. But the kingdom of God is within us in a weird sense. It is. So let's look at that here a little bit. Let's go to Matthew twelve twenty eight. We're going to look at a few different verses. Matthew twelve twenty eight. These are Jesus' own words. If I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. So he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God has come to you. That's what he's saying. So it isn't necessarily all in the future, although some verses say it is, because I think it's a dual Fulfillment, like so many things are. Try Mark 12.34. Somebody want to read that one? When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then, no one dared ask him any more questions. So, so you're not far from the kingdom of God, because he answered right. So what does it seem to be that the kingdom of God is there in, in this text? What does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? In heaven? Yeah, have Jesus in your heart. To have faith. If you have faith, you are now a child of God. You've become part of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is in you because as we looked there at was the Colossians 1.13 verse, how did the kingdom of God, how did we get translated or transferred into the kingdom of God? Through the redemption of Christ's blood. So if you have faith and you believe in Christ's blood, you have been transferred into the kingdom of God. So yes, you're there in the kingdom of God, scripturally speaking. Yeah. You know, we've in times past, we've talked about eternity. There are so many people who want to die so that they can get to eternal life. And I tell them, you're there now. You are already in eternity. It's just that you get to maybe change form, but your life will go on and on. For I mean, it's, it's too late. <laughs> you're there. So you now are e either eternally living in the kingdom of God or you will eternally live in the kingdom of, of Satan. And it just gets worse. So, uh, that's a thought there. Luke 10.9 is another one. 
Just kind of the same theme, but just want to give you a couple other examples. Somebody can read that one. Yeah. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. Okay, so as the sending out the disciples, he says, you go and heal them and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Again, talking about this faith, you're going to hear about this Jesus, he's going to die on the cross type thing, and that's how near the kingdom of God is to you. It's not like the end of the world has come upon you. He's saying, you believe in Jesus, and there it is. One more, I should have given you this one so you didn't have to go backwards, but Luke 17, 21. Okay. Yeah. The kingdom of God is within you. It's hard to get around that. So here's my question. Is the kingdom of God that's being talked about in Matthew 13 what's being talked about there or is it this new form after the Lord comes back that's being talked about in at least the parable of the mustard seed? Do you know what I'm asking? I'm wondering if it's not the invisible church, but the visible church. That technically the kingdom of, of heaven, the kingdom of God, would be the invisible church, yes. But in the parable, it seems like he's saying... The kingdom of heaven is going to look like this. But it truly is that, but there are these birds among them. Or there's the, it, there's the weeds and the wheat. And even the true kingdom of God is that wheat. It's going to look like this. It's going to look like a weedy field. But don't worry when the Lord comes back at the end times. And that's why those, it seems like there's that progression in those parables. The first four seem to be talking about, look at Satan and, and is all over in the church. He's just messed it up. But then as you get further down in those parables, we see uh, just kind of more of a, a, a God's stepping in with uh, that even among those weeds and the wheat, there are going to be those that are going to seek after this with their whole heart. They're going to be putting an effort into Christianity to seek this great treasure. And because of that, then the last parable says, God's going to separate these wheat so that the ultimate goal of the kingdom of heaven is going to be cleaned up when the weeds are cast out. And maybe these birds are chased away. And the yeast is taken away. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, let's uh, look at, well, we, we won't need to look at these, but I'll just give you a couple of um, examples. Maybe we'll look at a couple of them as far as symbols of birds in Scripture. We see uh, Matthew 13 in our text here, but verse 4. In that first parable of the sower, the birds that eat it up, as we said, represent Satan as he describes the, this parable. 
we mentioned, you had mentioned Abraham in Genesis 15 when God is giving a covenant to Abraham. The birds come and Abraham has to chase them away because it seems like there was some, Satan was trying to break the covenant. Satan was trying to attack that. So, um, pecked out the eyes of yeah the evil people which agrees with you know satan wants to destroy he wants to devour and so people say well why are they going to attack you know the ungodly because in the end of the world in revelation we see that after the slaughter god calls the birds of the air down to eat the flesh of the kings and the generals and all those things and you think well then they must be on god's side well no not necessarily he's unleashing the hordes of of satan his own. His own. Yeah. Um, what about like uh, when they find Judas's body, isn't it being devoured by birds too when it's hanging yep. there? Say that one again. When Judas, when they find Judas's body after he hung himself, wasn't it being devoured by birds too? You know, I don't recall that, but I could be wrong. Yeah, that's all I remember. Yeah, I don't recall it saying that, but I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Was I there? Um, Deuteronomy 28.26 is another example. Um, it just says, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And thou shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcasses shall be meat unto the, all the fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth. And no man shall fray them away. Be able to chase them away, basically. So, over and over, this is the example that is being given. And like I said, the wheat and the tares over, I mean, that's clearly Satan too. The weeds are, are not good. So, I think you're getting the idea. Let's, let's get to this topic then of this mustard seed. Um, and its size. Okay, we talked about some of the key ideas. The man. Who's the man that plants this seed? Yeah, I would think it would be Jesus is the one that sows it. Just like in the parable before it, we have the parable of the sower who's planting seeds. Now, some have argued that you know, we are the sower. But uh, it seems to be one person. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion Jesus is the sower. And He's the one that's planting the seeds out there. He's the one that makes it grow. Right? He's the one that gives us faith. Okay? So, in the parable of the sower, we know that the sower is Jesus. And the field 
is the world and the hearts of people, right? All right. So if you take that same imagery into the mustard seed, the farmer is Jesus, and he's sowing the seed among the world. And that world may not necessarily be good soil. I mean, it's there's going to be a mustard seed, and it's starting out small, no doubt about it. But it's going to grow. How does it grow itself? Well, it doesn't. God's going to make it grow. Um, now, keep in mind that we are dealing with parables, which is why he says the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He's not saying it is a mustard seed, but it's, it's like that. This is just an example. Okay? Normally, a mustard plant will grow about a, a decent one, four feet tall. And it's more like a bushy kind of thing, certainly not branches that birds could you know, land on unless it's a small finch or something like that. In perfect growing conditions, in you know, we're talking amazing. Yeah, you can maybe get one 15 feet tall, which sounds pretty impressive. But I mean, corn gets 15 feet tall sometimes, just about right, 14ish. Yeah. So it's still not a, a tree. And even then, in its best form, it's very kind of windy. It's it's a bushy kind of thing. It is not by any means what is envisioned in this parable. It's kind of... Um, I can't think of a word, but kind of bushy, flimsy. And you wouldn't think of it as being this strong oak that the church should be if this is what he's talking about. I'm thinking more of a, I guess the image that comes to my mind is the king, and I can't remember what his name was, if Jehu was involved in that or not, but there are two kings of Israel, one, one Israel and Judah, and one of them said, you know, a cedar said to the thistles of Lebanon, or maybe it was the cedars of Lebanon said to these thistles, it's kind of that imagery that you got a cedar or a big monster solid tree versus this thing that if you would have a flame to it, it would just <laughs> go up like crazy. You know, I'm, you know the image I'm trying to show you here? Just kind of a... Not, like a cedar to a tumbleweed. Yeah, tumbleweed kind of imagery is what, what I've got. Big tumbleweed, yeah. But... I think that it may indicate here the expansion of this mustard seed, that it, it's quick and it grows, but as it grows, this is not a good thing, what it's growing into. That it's growing into kind of a weak, but large, even though it started, I mean, it, it is, you know, that's impressive, but it's a, it's a false imp impressiveness. Yeah, yep. It's a facade. Okay. Well, let's look here at just a couple more verses. 
about this kingdom of God that we are in now. Okay? Let's go, Nathan, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So Matthew 7, 13. Donovan, Matthew 20, 16. Noah, Luke 10, 2. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's go, Stephen, Luke twelve thirty one and thirty two. We'll go, Jordan. Acts one fifteen, Jordan Westengard. Logan, Romans eleven two through five. <laughs> we'll go with <laughs> Nathan. Go ahead and read yours. Okay, according to Matthew 7 here, it's saying that the gate into the kingdom of heaven is very narrow and few people are going to find it. Which seems to be the opposite of the general message of the church today, isn't it? The general message, show up and you're good. Yeah, exactly. Show up and you're good. You say a prayer, hey, you're in, good. Oh, you say God in your music, hey, he's Christian. <laughs> yeah. Few are going to find it, but the gate is narrow. Noah, yours? He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so we're supposed to be praying that, that people will go out, God would send them. Well, why are the workers few? There's, there's a lot of harvest out there, but there are so few people doing the job they're supposed to be doing. Why is that? Maybe because there's not very many to choose from. I mean, the harvest isn't harvested yet. So I don't know. Donovan? What verse was that? 20, Matthew 20.16. That's what I had written down. What else? Uh, go beyond another verse, maybe. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, no. "Yeah, I might have given you something that's not making much sense here." Okay, we'll skip that one. Sorry, Stefan. Okay, do not be afraid, little flock. And maybe, you know, that might be a stretch, but I think in context of everything else we're seeing, it's probably what he's saying. Don't be afraid, little flock. My people are few. Jordan Westengard? In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Okay, this is after three and a half years. 120 people, not too many. Romans 11, 2 through 5. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? 
Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I am left. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply? I have kept for myself seven thousand men, but not bowed their knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, so. He's saying, right, so too at the present, which I believe there's end time significance to that, there is a remnant, a very small number of the total that is chosen. And like we said earlier, it was the same in the days of Noah. Eight people out of probably a billion people that made it on the ark. I mean, that's incredible. And he says, just as it was then, so is it going to be before the Son of Man returns. Sodom and Gomorrah, three people make it out alive, out of the whole city. And he says, again in Luke 17, that's the way it's going to be when the Lord comes back. We're talking a remnant is going to be there. You think, wow, that is not the picture that we have of America today or the world. Now, I'll tell you, when I went to India... That's what I saw. You know, I don't know if those of you who saw me kind of give a little rundown of it, the, the picture of the cemetery there, a Christian cemetery. And that's what struck me is there's hardly anybody in there. Because there's hardly any Christians over there. And so that was a chosen few right there in that cemetery. I thought, man, I'm in a town of 600,000 people and I've got a, I'm in a cemetery smaller than my yard. That's a small chosen few. But I think that you get a more accurate picture of Christianity there than what you get over here. I think we're reading in this parable a pretty accurate picture of the parable, or in this parable of, of the United States. Christianity. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can get examples of that. Yeah, you know, there's that. It's the whole revelation thing. Ephesus, those that you know have lost their first love. At first, it's great, but then the excitement wears off. People get used to the same old thing, and and um, you lose your first love. Yeah, not unlike Israel. I mean, we could go example after example. That's exactly what goes on. I think a lot of times, though, today we give too high like expectations. Like, you think that, oh, if I become a Christian, everything's going to be all fine and dandy. When that doesn't happen, they give up because yeah. we're, we're telling them they're wrong. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, a lot of churches are coming. And then when they don't, they leave. Yeah. Which is what Ray Comfort in his ministry talks about all the time, that we are giving a false gospel, which is that democratic view of the gospel. That 
you come to church and you're going to get a better life. You get what you want. This isn't about, hey, God, an all-powerful, almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God created you and He wants you to serve Him and you will serve Him without asking why. He loves you. He will take care of you. He has made promises. He's coming back. And so in the meantime, do what He's asked you to do. And I mean, there are parables that are to that effect. You know, the master who leaves a servant behind and, you know, or he tells him to do something and, you know, but these others get tired of waiting for him or whatever the case might be. But the democratic view of the gospel is what we are, it's that false gospel of prosperity and whatnot. God has everything for you. God loves you so much that he just wants to, you know, let you win the lottery. No, he's saying God loves you so much that he gave his very son to die for you because you deserve to go to hell. And because of that, he expects you to now serve him. And you're going to want to because you're going to love your king. This dictator is a great dictator. He will provide everything you need. Yeah. Well, in, in that regard... Sure, you can have one perfect dictator, but if, if you're looking at the system from a, a human standpoint, it's a system that simply cannot last, is the thing. You're always going to have one guy who's going to ruin the whole show. Like, it, it, it works for God, because God can't die, obviously. But, uh, yeah. I just want to point that out for anybody who happens to just listen to that and think we're all pro-dictator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I agree. It's a good point. So, if the tree has become large, it seems like something went wrong with the with the the growth of this tree. Yeah, got all the splice. Yeah. Yeah, unless it was a pre-flood atmosphere. So, <laughs> it kind of goes along the lines, though, of what you were saying earlier about. These mega churches, and again, I'm not saying all mega churches are bad because I don't believe they are. But as an overview of the, our society in general, a mega church is probably one that I'd want to stay away from. In general, yeah. So, and I don't. Again, I don't think this is just necessarily talking about the building churches here, but the kingdom of God, the people. And what we're seeing is the general attitude of Christians today is messed up. We are, we're messed up. The birds have come and they have, they have sat among the branches of the church in our philosophies, in our programs. We're trying to, to change everything we can to get people to come into the churches rather than letting the word of God and the power and the threat of hell um, be in the Spirit of God, the power of God, to bring them into the church. We're making a human effort rather than just going out and preaching the truth. And if they don't listen to that truth, fine. That we need to just give them the truth and let that message do its thing. And you know what? If we don't get a whole bunch of birds, good. 
because God says, you know what, the numbers are going to be few, but at least because the numbers are few, they're going to be solid, which is what he warns about. Don't let these, you know, wolves in sheep clothing, these false prophets creep in among you. It's going to be small, but our goal isn't to build the church. God will do that. Our goal is to serve the king. And if we do that, and I think that's the thing is, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago, what is the goal of church? Is the goal of church to evangelize, or is the goal of church for us to just go serve the king and worship and love him? And if we make the church, the goal of the church evangelism, what we're doing is we're inviting birds in. Aren't we? I mean, you could argue that perhaps in some ways, but I think that if you just look at the history of things, I'd say, yeah, I mean, we're just inviting the birds in, hoping that they'll become some other creature or something. My analogy fell apart there. <laughs> yeah. Evolve, yeah, evolve. So, but you know what I'm saying? And with that, you don't want to go so No, by yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, certainly not trying to outreach to people, but is the church the place to do that? Yeah, is the church the place to outreach, or is the church to prepare you to go out and outreach? Yeah, I like Jordan's analogy in the last week of the week. Or church is like strategy time. You know, come back, rest, regroup. Yeah, it's the huddle. Yeah. Well, let's let's close on uh, Daniel. Daniel four nineteen. Because I think that if we understand this parable as I believe that this is Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. Understanding this, again, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, I think that if we truly understand the meaning of this Daniel passage, it's going to help you understand the meaning of the New Testament passage of the mustard seed. But we're kind of working backwards here, and I think because you've now understood the parable of the mustard seed, it's going to give you insight into Daniel 4's message. Okay? Look here at this very famous dream. We've all read it. Then Daniel also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, 
You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze. And it goes on. Typically, when you read this, you think, Wow, you know, Babylon was this amazing place. It was, no doubt about it. It looked really great from the outside, didn't it? Hanging gardens of, of Babylon, one of the you know wonders of the world, all those things were there. And you think, wow, see, he was at his prime, everything was good, hunky-dory, and then God cuts him down. But what we're really seeing here is, yes, on the outside, Babylon was looked awesome, but you know what it was? Worldly pagan. It wasn't good, and that's why it got cut down. Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't know the Lord at that time, so God has to cut him down, but he leaves the roots there. In essence, that's what's going to happen to the church. I think that this message has end-time significance as well. He's saying, listen, this mustard seed has grown into this big, huge tree, but you know what God is going to do? Cut it down at the roots. The stump is going to be there. There's going to be a root. That seed that was planted is still good. It's just something went wrong with it. It was used improperly or something. And so, in essence, when the Lord comes back, He is going to get rid of the birds. He's going to get rid of the weeds, throw them in the you know hell, and then the good wheat will be taken in to be with Him. And likewise, after this is cut down, how many years later is it that that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is restored? Do you remember? Seven. Does that ring a bell for end time significance? We see when the Lord comes back, there's this period of the seven year tribulation. Okay, and all of that time period, and it's at the end of that time that Nebuchadnezzar is lifted up and restored, and he then has anything but a democratic view of God. He doesn't take any credit um, on his own. So what we see here in Daniel, if you move on, He, all of this happens, he goes out for seven years, and in verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Not this worldly one. Not the one that I built, but the one that God builds, basically, is what he's saying. Endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. The peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Like we're doing in America. Like probably the attitude Nebuchadnezzar had. I think that that Nebuchadnezzar picture is a picture of the church. 
It's the same thing. So at, at the end of that seven-year tribulation, what's the church do? Well, the church is up there saying pretty much the same thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar says. Okay, I'm going to just read that little part again here. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures. Okay, now let's go to Revelation chapter 11. And then we'll be done. Revelation 11. Okay, this is um, the seventh trumpet in verse 15. Now, the seventh trumpet, I personally believe that's when the Lord comes back. Okay? Um, we know that it's at the last trumpet, that, you know, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, all this. Well, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven which said, and I believe this is, by the way, the seven-year tribulation is over. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We're talking about this kingdom, there's the kingdom of the world. There's Satan's kingdom. And then there's the kingdom that's within us because we have faith. But he says, that's going to change and now it becomes the kingdom of our Lord. At the end of that seven, his dominion is going to reign. And there is going to be no more of this, you know, why did God do this and all of that, but it's all about him and not about us. Just like Nebuchadnezzar recognized. just see so many more similarities with the way our country is becoming and what happened to them, what's going to happen to them, Revelation, and, and how it could be construed even so much as to be the United States and how we will fall. Which is interesting in Revelation because chapter 16 through 18 talks about the fall of Babylon, Satan's kingdom. Right? And so in Revelation, you have Satan's kingdom. And some think that, that Babylon, because it's called Babylon, is the United States. Uh, there's indication that it could be Jerusalem area. But the point being here is it's Satan's kingdom that's referred to as Babylon, which is what we see. I think Nebuchadnezzar was, his kingdom was Satan's kingdom, just as the birds of the air are sitting Satan is is contaminating the kingdom of God here on earth because it's really the kingdom of Satan. Like you were saying earlier, it sounds so really good on the outside. It looks good on the outside. When you get in here, you realize the birds, America's chickens have come home to roost. Yeah. Very good. Jordan? Oh, you can sing? Uh-huh. Uh, what, who's the guy? Obama's old pastor. Jeremiah. Oh, right. Oh, I think it's interesting. In Revelation 18, it talks about fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Yep. Yep. In the mustard. Yep. Mustard seed. Mustard, mushroom, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that thought...
We'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just grateful for Your Word. Uh, May Your Spirit continue to give us understanding and may we just um, be freed from all the traditions of men. Lord, we've heard so many times and just taken other people's word for it rather than going to You and Your Word to understand um, the Word, to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And because of that, so many things have been hidden from us as You intended the parables to do. And Lord, if the church is missing this, it's um, not clear to them. It's scary, Lord, to, to question how many in the church understand who have faith. Lord, may we be just faithful to You and may we not have a democratic view of You and and Christianity, but that we would realize our place and that this is about You and Your power and that You be glorified. And Lord, if You desire that we be poor, if You desire that we go through life with disease and trials and tribulations of many kinds, may we be satisfied to serve You in that way. Lord, only by Your grace can we do such a thing. So increase in us our faith through Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.